everyone, and welcome back to Election Day. This week was yet another example of why it's so hard to cover politics in the Trump era. Just this week, since my last episode, there were so many major headlines, outrageous and unbelievable events, that I can't cover all the bases. At the start of the week, there was Trump's call to Georgia's Secretary of State, Brad Raffsberger, telling him to find enough votes to overturn Biden's victory there. And then, in the same state of Georgia, you had Democrats winning both of the Senate runoff races, John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock flipping those seats and giving Democrats Senate control, as I introduced in last week's episode. But then, all were overshadowed by what happened yesterday. It was such a unbelievable, to many traumatic, to all historic moment. So that's what I'm going to focus on today, and everything else that happened I will get to in next week's episode, which anyway is a season 5 recap and follow-up. So the first thing I'll do is let's walk through what happened on Wednesday and on Thursday. The reason there was a joint session of Congress, so both the Senate and the House meeting together, was to count the Electoral College votes, which would make Joe Biden's victory official. This is usually just a ceremonial procedure, as the dust has already settled by then, but of course, Trump's unprecedented challenge to the election results made this a significant event. This was supposed to be sort of a last stand for Trump and a lot of Republicans' argument of election fraud, where Republican senators and representatives could object to the votes of certain states being counted. And that's what happened just a few minutes after 1 p.m., which is when the counting started. Republicans in Congress objected to counting the votes in Arizona. That meant that they had to go back into their respective chambers, the Senate and the House, and then they would debate whether to reject them or not. Obviously, this was bound to fail. We all know there was no election fraud, and there was not enough backing to actually overturn the count. But still, this was a major political maneuver, and something that hadn't happened since the 19th century. So then they started to debate, and then that's when mobs, violent mobs, or protesters, as I guess conservatives would like to call them, incited by and encouraged by President Trump, stormed into the Capitol building. They invaded the Senate floor, they invaded House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's office, and the Congress people had to evacuate. This insurrection lasted for several hours before law enforcement could take them out of the building before everything was settled, and then the joint session or the respective sessions of Congress resumed. And then you had Vice President Mike Pence, Senate Majority and Minority Leaders Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer denounced the efforts, and then they went back to debating Arizona. Obviously, that failed. They went back to joint session. They counted 
all the other states until they got to Pennsylvania. There was another Republican objection there, which failed, and then they came back, they went through the remainder of the states, and then Biden's victory was made official. So that's what happened. And the reason I took such a long time doing that is because in this Trump era, where facts are under attack, everything just seems to be about someone's opinion and not what actually happened, I think it's important to get the events straight. And obviously we have huge questions about security and law enforcement, about deploying the National Guard. Why were these rioters and mobs able to get so close and even into the Capitol building and stay there for so long? But that's not something I'll touch upon too much in this episode. I have a few main points I'll get into in this episode, but the first and most important that I wish to really hammer into your brain is that this is not normal. This is domestic terrorism and extremism on the Capitol building. It's an insurrection against the American government. There is truly no parallel to this in American history since the Civil War, since the Confederate secession. We've had foreign enemies, like during the Cold War, or like 9-11. But this is a group of Americans, people who claim to be patriots and led by the American president, engaging in domestic terrorism and extremism against the Capitol building. This is a war on democracy that we need to unilaterally condemn and fight against, not with. I moderate a lot of my viewpoints on this podcast, and I try to remain more analytical than I am persuasive, but I will not and cannot moderate my view on democracy. And I think it's truly sad that America is at a point where for and against democracy is pretty much a political viewpoint that you can have, one that's associated with for and against democracy. A political candidate and a president. It shouldn't be. And that brings me to my next point, which is that it's Trump's fault. I hope we're at a point where we're able to accept that. Ezra Klein of the New York Times said he is a wolf in wolf's clothing. He doesn't even try to hide it. We've seen this coming. Of course it was expected. At the White House rally, he said, go to the Capitol. While these riots were going on, he said, we love you. He expressed sympathy for them. He said they were patriots. He said he would never accept defeat. Doesn't that say something about the person? Isn't that the sort of thing a dictator does? That they will never go away, that they will hold on to power forever, no matter what happens, no matter what the people's will is, and that he will use his supporters as a tool for that? The most telling was Rudy Giuliani's quote. He said, we should engage in trial by combat. That the fist, that the gun, that violence is the righteous and the only judge by which we can determine results in a democracy. This is extreme authoritarianism. 
never seen. There is no parallel in modern American history. It's such a blatant effort by Donald Trump to use his popular support, to use his lies to provoke such an incident, to keep his hold on power somehow. One of the things that shocked me the most and I think really displays the spirit of the events of this week was when the American flag was taken down and replaced with a Trump 2020 flag with a Confederate flag put up. This is unbelievable extremism where Trump's dangerous world of lies, this fabricated reality, comes before America takes the place of America, becomes their America. This idea that America is and must remain Trump's country. And to me, that's the spirit, encouraged by Trump, of course, that sustains this belief in election fraud. The words of a president matter. He got the media and the Congress people to eventually work with him, but ultimately, he spearheaded the effort. Trump deluded so many people, undermining confidence in our democracy, and the culmination of that was the events of this week. One of the moments that stood out to me during the riots and the mob were when a caller from Boise, Tammy from Boise, called into C-SPAN and really emotionally troubled, just asked, did my president lie to me? I voted for Trump and I'm sorry to all the people who have been hurt today. And it was something along those lines. I think it was, if he lied to me, I want him to come out and say it. So seriously, to me, the responsibility lies so heavily and so clearly on President Trump for this day that will go down in history, as so many in Congress and in America have said, a dark, dark day that America will forever remember. This is one of the historic days in our history when they stormed the U.S. Capitol. It's January 6th, 2021, that will go along with 9-11, that will go along with the Civil War, that will go down with Pearl Harbor. And so then perhaps we are lucky that this was it. In so many other countries, in so many examples around the world and in history, this would have been the end of a republic. This could be the moment where America turns into a illiberal democracy, a sort of Russia, where Trump takes on a Putin-like role and becomes a kind of autocrat. There's a reason historians recently during the Trump administration have studied the fall of the Roman Republic and when it became an empire, a dictatorship. And this week is the culmination of that. This is a point, it was a make or break point, where it could have gone two ways, where democracy holds up or Trump takes over through this violent streets effort. But thankfully, American institutions were just strong enough 
to hold up. And when I talk about the street's effort, what I mean was how he, along with many analysts and politicians, continued to mention that the challenge to the election, if it can't be done just through the electoral systems in these states, he would go to the courts and then to the streets. Basically, that if legal recourse is impossible, then going to the streets using violence, using literally any means necessary, is okay. This is what Trump encouraged, that anything is okay as long as it helps him. And that's when you start thinking about America's international reputation as the torchbearer of democracy. America's reputation has really sunk today. Because America did not look like a stable country. America was pushed to the brink. America looked like so many fragile and illiberal democracies. That's why you had people like Angela Merkel of Germany who were concerned. On Wednesday, America looked like its enemies. And so to take a quick tangent, I think that's what Joe Biden was trying to stress in his speech, that this does not represent America, that America is better than this. And obviously, one of the big themes of his campaign and his presidency will have to be the restoration of democracy. But anyway, going back to the event, which, remember, was an attempt at a violent overthrow of democracy. And in addition to this violent effort, I would also like to talk about and think about the less front cover aspect of Wednesday and Thursday, which was the objections by Republican senators and congresspeople that they didn't want to count the votes from Arizona and Pennsylvania. Of course, they're continuing to base it off of and continuing to propagate these baseless claims of election fraud and irregularities, even though those were settled a while ago. There was a lot of pressure from Trump on Mike Pence to find some way to just get him to be president. Remember, it doesn't have to even be legal recourse to Donald Trump. Anything is okay as long as it helps him. But in the choice between Donald Trump and the Constitution, Mike Pence chose the Constitution, even if he didn't offer a direct rebuke of Donald Trump. So, again, that's something to be thankful for. But still, the objections weren't something that were utilized since the 19th century. That is, once again, just like the mobs pushing America to the brink just a little further, destabilizing the process just a little bit more. That disenfranchising the will of the voters is something that they can do. But remember, this isn't normal, right? Obviously. I really like this quote from Mitt Romney. I think truly summarizes how preposterous this whole thing is. Here's what he said. He said, We gather today due to a selfish man's injured pride 
and the outrage of his supporters, whom he has deliberately misinformed for the past two months and stirred to action this very morning. What happened here today was an insurrection incited by the President of the United States. And then it goes on, and if you go on his romney.senate.gov website, you can read the full statement, which I encourage you do. But that phrase, a selfish man's injured pride, really rings true, to me at least, that there was so much chaos, violent and nonviolent Senate procedures, that really just all comes from Donald Trump not wanting to accept a defeat. And then the other one I really liked was from Lindsey Graham, who ironically, Lindsey Graham was one of the biggest supporters and defenders of Trump and his allegations, but he still said, enough is enough. We can't tolerate this from Donald Trump any longer. It's over. Enough is enough really encapsulates how I think so many people are feeling about Trump. And now, actually, a lot of even Republicans feel about Trump. We saw that after the riots and the mobs, Republican senators realized the consequences of their actions at least slightly more. Because I think before they thought it was just all political games. There was that quote from an inside source about how what's the harm in indulging him a little bit longer? Well, Republicans saw the harm. And I think that's why so many people folded after the mobs. Kelly Leffler decided not to object to Georgia. And then the senator, one of the senators, pulled their backing from the objection to Wisconsin. And I'm so thankful that we saw this rift between the two parts of the Republican Party. The institutionalists, the ones who deeply care about the party's interests, but before that want to remain at least some bedrock of how election procedures are supposed to work, and then those that really don't care, those that want to undermine institutions. Enough Republican senators sided with the rules. Even Mitch McConnell, who, as you know, I generally hate, but he was on the right side this time, as were so many Republican senators. Unfortunately, too many House Republicans were not. They made this into a partisan effort, corroborating with Trump and with the conservative media machine. A majority of House Republicans agreed with the objections, a majority, more than half of House Republicans signed on to, agreed with this effort. And what really depresses me even more is that these are all political calculations. They're held hostage to Trump. And I doubt that anyone actually believes this election fraud. That's why so many senators folded after the mobs. It was that they never believed fraud to begin with. They just thought it would be a harmless calculation. I guess that's still better than a sincere belief, but the fact that a majority of House Republicans, that drives me crazy.
But still, I guess we are lucky that we survived. And once Biden comes into office, hopefully we'll have a restoration of some kind of normal, some kind of democracy. But even that's something that seems so far away. There's still two more weeks of the Trump presidency. And as we've learned this week, a week is a really, really long time. Remember, Trump continues to assert that he didn't actually lose the election. So we could see some kind of effort through the next two weeks, again and again and again. Trump said that he will have a peaceful transition, but there was already violence. You can't say it's going to be a peaceful transition from now. As I believe a New York Times article put it, this isn't just a coup, it's harder than a coup. Because there is now an ingrained belief in the American population, led and propagated by Trump and the GOP, that this democracy should be overturned by any means, that Trump is the rightful winner. And when that's already infiltrated such a significant portion of the population, that's not something that ends just as soon as Trump's coup attempt ends. So for the next two weeks, Trump is going to be in full burn-it-down mode. He can do whatever he wants. He might even try to get revenge on the Republicans. And that's why, you know, we've had Betsy DeVos and Elaine Chao, his cabinet members, Mick Mulvaney as chief of staff. This is probably why everyone's running away. They're just running away from the fire and there's no interest in sticking by him anymore. And it's also why you have people arguing for his removal via impeachment or the 25th Amendment. I'm sure that it's also why Twitter and Facebook have blocked his accounts until Biden's inauguration day. For these next two, what could be chaotic weeks, they have made the judgment that I agree with that it's dangerous to let Trump continue to incite efforts, to continue to spread his narrative. The most important thing to take away and continue to remember is that the New York Times print edition headline was Trump incites mob in the big capital letters headline that they only use for a few really major events. I think that really sums it up pretty well. Before I finish this episode, I want to ask all of you to just spend about seven minutes to please go watch this YouTube clip, I think is definitely the most powerful monologue that I've seen about this event, and that I've based large proportions of this episode on. This is a clip, it's available on YouTube, from Late Night with Seth Meyers. It's titled, Seth Meyers Addresses the Armed Insurrection at the U.S. Capitol, so please go watch that. I'll be back next week with my Season 5 recap and follow-up episode where I'm going to address basically everything that's happened in the past 8 weeks that compounds on 
or demonstrates something new that I need to address to in relation to one of my points from the past seven episodes. So for that, please come back next week to Election Day, and thank you for listening.